Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Pushing Back is a short story anthology by John Kinsella. The landscapes are distinctly Australian, but the evocation of the human spirit in all its guises is universal. So, John, welcome to 3CR. Hi, David, and uh, hello all on 3CR, or listening to 3CR, I should say. Now, we can't possibly go through all the stories, so there is one I want to dabble in, first and foremost, the eagle over the funeral in the shearing shed. And if I may, the eagle has returned to its empty eyrie, its desolate roost in one of the few sammies that remained on the eroded hill about two kilometres to the west of the shed, a tall glowing tree rooted in red clay, a tree that seemed to feed on sunsets. The eagle will watch the shed. It will watch the sky. It will watch the dead. The evocation of Australia, you're very strong in all of these stories. Well, you know, in, in many ways, it's where I write from. I write from Belladong, Noongar country in Western Australia, the West Australian wheat belt. And uh, I, I suppose I try and capture what I experience, see, feel around me. So it's a very visual kind of way of writing. Um, it, it has sound qualities, I hope, as well, but it's very much what I see. And so that kind of image and the kind of images that you find throughout this book very much are of the kind of world I move through physically. In this story, The Eagle, an old alcoholic shearer regrets not having said more about a young shearer whose courage he admired. So the interesting thing to begin with is the characters in The Eagle are nameless as are a lot of characters in these stories. You know, it's an interesting thing. Quite often you encounter a group of people or you're um, present for a short part of their lives and you don't really know them. You don't really know all the details of their lives, but you see them and you interact with them and you move on and you don't always remember the names. Um, Ten years later, I couldn't tell you the name of someone I saw standing on the street corner I may have cross paths with and exchange the brief word with. And what I like to capture in these stories, what I call the kind of glimpse, and other people have called the kind of glimpse, is to see them in the moment of their lives, often interacting with others, and especially with the environment around them. And they are almost universal. So they are highly individualised, obviously. They have their lives, their agency, their intactness. But they're also part of something else. So the reader doesn't possess the characters one's reading about. You don't own them. You don't get all their story. You just get an insight or a glimpse at part of their lives and the part of their lives that makes contact with your life as a reader or other lives of people within the story. So it is a specific kind of way of approaching storytelling and it's that. Um, and the basic underwriting idea is that you can't own everything about them. What it also does do is make the feelings and emotions they're going through more universal, as you say. I mean, this alcoholic Shearer feels regret that he hadn't spoken up 
at the boy's funeral. So that feeling is perhaps accentuated? Yeah, and, you know, David, this is a big issue about the whole nature of articulateness and um, how and when people feel they can speak. So the, the older Shira, who wishes he had spoken up and really probably had a lot to say, couldn't because the, the, the overwhelming feeling of the moment and all the stories and history around his interaction with other people bring a kind of um, taciturn, reserved, maybe ironic, withdrawn kind of personality into a, into a vital moment. There's nothing more confronting than death and nothing more confronting than loss of young life. And so it's what's not said that becomes overwhelming. How do we know what's not said? Well, we actually don't unless the story indicates it in some way through suggesting it, through um, showing it in some way. And in this particular case, it's through what he wished he'd said he hadn't said. It's about saying a lot with little. That, to me, is really, really epitomises the um, short story as a form. But what it also does do is it allows for the reader to imagine the unsaid, to feel yep. the unspoken emotion. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Because it's like the characters having their own agency and their own intactness. The reader also has their own agency and own intactness. Um, as a writer, I don't own my readers. I don't want to. Um, I want them to be who they are and go to a, a piece of a, a fiction with their own experiences and their own way of reading. And it does exactly that. I hope it does that. It allows the reader to um, implicate themselves uh, in the scenario to actually experience it uh, vicariously, be part of it, and uh, come to their own conclusions and, and go places that maybe I haven't thought of. Now, I mean, I suppose this comes from, you know, being a poet and being very interested in um, the relationship a poem has uh, with those who hear or read it. And uh, that's something I've taken across to the short story is that I think that um, the short story is not about telling the reader how they should feel or think or whatever. I think it's about setting up a scenario in which they're invited to participate almost vicariously and to um, you know, go in their own direction, take their own directions, go in their own kind of way through that fiction. Now, we've talked about the eagle over the funeral in the shearing shed, but I've got another thing to look at here. This is a story called A Taste of Blood. But what I love is actually the last sentence. And if I may, again, his wife was to be left a cash bequest unless she had born children. Otherwise, the entire farm estate was to be run in equal share by his extended family and their offspring. But the house in which he loved his wife, in which he tried to make her see his way, in which he saw red with fury when she wouldn't comply, when she wouldn't love green fields as she should, as his wife loved green fields, would in future belong to whoever took up residence, whoever ate their meals there, whoever made a family to take the farm away from the blood he couldn't let go of, the venomous blood that ached at his love and his premonition of that day when blood changed course. Now, that's all one sentence, good sir. Quite often the sentences in these stories are quite clipped and measured, but I think that when you're dealing with very conflicted ideas, you're entering the character's head, 
you're um, running with the kind of way thoughts compile themselves. There's a lot of contradictions and uh, dissensions within the, within, within the actual narratorial thought. And you've got you know, someone who clearly is uh, disturbing in, in many ways. And there's that suggestive um, you know, brooding violence and aggression. And, and at the same time, someone trying to work out where they sit and where they stand. So it's indirect. You're not directly in it. You're indirectly in it through the narratorial kind of construction. But, uh, yeah, that's why it's a long sentence, because you're shifting from um, information being sort of provided, description and so on, into something that's a bit different narratorially. Where are you sitting in relationship to the character and characters? How much are you in the head? That kind of thing. But you're also investing the homestead called Greenfields with this history of a family and its behaviour and conduct. And so it's not just the property that's being passed down, it's all the other activities, behaviours, conduct, good and bad, that have gone with that homestead. Yeah, and and this particular, you know, you've got someone who clearly believes that they own the land, they own everything on it, they own the wife, they own the children, and um, you know how does how does that kind of uh, work in any um, any sense of justice or freedom? Of course, it doesn't. And land and uh, inheritance is too often caught up in that um, narrow view of ownership and possession. And yes, the story is dealing with a lot and a very disturbing kind of past. Disturbing events have taken place. Um, you know, the, the blood is uh, it's referring to um, a blood that's been spilt. And it's, um, yeah, one of the more disturbing stories in the, in the collection, I think. And it is trying to deal with that uh, rigidity of inheritance and that rigidity of owning everything, owning people, uh, which the story you know, refutes, obviously, uh, by intimation. But, you know, the reader finds their way through. And in some ways, it's actually a, it's a horror story, really, that one. There are other uh, sort of strategies and skills you employ. Stories like Echolocation, Goozy, The Globe, they almost have an image in them. Uh, the Echolocation is almost allegorical for a, a sound that chirrup with its sonic range uh, pervading people's lives. The goozy is almost like a fictitious a spirit that can infect yeah, well, you. It's actually, it's actually a spit, a slag. Yeah, big goozy or goozy. Yeah. Uh, goozy, they say here. Um, yeah, it's you get the sense from the beginning it's some kind of waste that's come from the body. It's an expectoration. It's someone spitting. It's someone spit sitting in a big glob on the street. And around that, that, that abject image, is a, a whole kind of social dynamic takes place in the town on the on a quiet afternoon on the weekend, and um, it becomes a, a symbol for um, not only disjunction but also connection. A, a strange connection is made through that guzzy, and um, yeah, uh, you know, I'm very interested the way something that seems to be of no relevance to uh, the way a story is told becomes its total relevance. It brings about a conversation that should be had that isn't being had. And around that, a kind of uh, meeting takes place and lives make contact, then they pass again. 
And I'm very interested in these instances of um, seemingly illogical, almost impossible or irrelevant uh, occasion in which significant things can happen. Those strange moments of um, coming together and parting, those, just those things that don't really feature large uh, when we think about the events of our lives, but in some way um, change things, shift things in the characters. Going along with that, you've got stories like Pushing Back, where you've got the flesh-eating knight, but a boy is sort of standing in the doorway against a storm in many ways, but the storm could reflect other things going on in the background in his life. You have the carpet cleaner begging for work and the interchange there with someone who can't afford to pay. Um, People living itinerantly in roaming the campsite, um, the aftermath of bullying in Man the Barricades. So there's quite a range here of identifiable situations, of people on the verge of crisis, and they're all filled with emotion. But unfortunately, John, we are going to have to end the interview there. A bit like a short story in this interview, David, it's, you know, compact everything in and uh, then let it live its life. Exactly. And hopefully the uh, listeners have got a sense of what John is on about in his book, Pushing Back. The author, of course, John Kinsella, and it's a transit lounge release. So, John, thank you very much for talking with me today. A pleasure, David, and uh, you have a good one. So that was my interview with John Kinsella, Kinsella, I should say. And now here is Jan's interview with Ella Baxter. Are you able to meditate? This is a time when our mind and body is calmed and separate. The opposite of this could be grief with the overload of emotions. Ella Baxter has mixed all of this with humour in her debut novel, New Animal. Welcome, Ella. Oh, thanks for having me, Jan. (laughs) Beautiful introduction. You have given your main character, Amelia, an occupation that deals with grief. What is it? Uh, She's a cosmetologist to the deceased. So she's basically working in a mortuary, her family-run business, and her main job is to apply makeup before uh, viewings. So she dresses the deceased, she does their hair, nails and makeup. And so she's dealing with them every day. I I like that she's got her certificate for in embalming. That's that's precise. Quote, the deceased are beyond beautiful, but only because they are so empty of worry. Everything tense or unlikable is gone. Like a shopping centre in the middle of the night, they have lost all the chaos and clatter. But has Amelia. Mm. Yeah. Mother and friend Judy both work at the funeral parlour too, and they know Amelia isn't coping. And this is where I'd like to ask Ella to read from her book, The New Animal, from page 181. And it's all about feelings. I let my eyes blur, wondering if I'd ever truly understood grief before, even though I worked in a funeral home. I knew it was the catalyst for books and songs. People wax lyrical about grief and death. People win regional arts grants for their essays on watching people die. 
I never read or listened to any of it because I thought I knew it already. Every day, every single day, I would lecture someone about grief. It's profound. It's necessary. It's human. I would repeat these words that I'd heard other people say with no personal experience of them. Which part of grief do you want to know about? The developmental, psychological, emotional? I've got facts. I'm full of facts. It's profound. It's necessary. It's human. Nobody tells you that it drips like dye into your life slowly colouring everything. Nobody tells you how unhelpful people can be or how unfriendly the world can seem. Nobody tells you the hours involved in processing all the feelings and memories. Nobody, nobody, nobody tells you any of this. So it's these feelings and she's she's been advised how to get them out. You know, she could go to a therapist and spit them out or she could wrap herself in a chemical blanket with drugs or sweat it out through exercise. Instead, she goes to the lookout. Why does she go there? You know, I think in a lot of ways, that's probably part of myself I've written into the character of Amelia because I find I'm anchored into places, particularly in the landscape, not so much inside, but, you know, outside. And I think... There was a place in my childhood which I used to go to all the time. It was by the river and it was looking across at an island full of bats. And I think, you know, when I was writing the character of Amelia, I needed to ground her in something. She was so chaotic and so, I guess, um, unrooted. She seemed uprooted, you know. And so the lookout became that for her. And it's a place that has deep significance because... Someone chose to end their life there. Amelia speaks about compartmentalising her own life. She wants to stop thinking. So how does she, what, what activity does she get into remove herself from her mind? Well, to move herself from her mind into her body, she reverts to sex. And she focuses on the sensations of her body rather than her thoughts and feelings. And I think for her, sex is a way to feel bigger than she is. You know, she talks about being this new animal which comes from the beast with two backs, which is what Shakespeare wrote in Othello. And I think for her, she's actually combining with another mass. You know, she's feeling like she has two brains, two hearts, two sets of lungs, she's feeling quite, I guess, strong and impenetrable in a lot of ways where she feels quite vulnerable in her daily life. The book actually starts with, there is a man with kind eyes and crooked teeth in my bed. Well, he doesn't stay long, you know. <laughs> she's back on the dating app before the bed get cools down. She wants to be flattened, squashed, and folded and under another person. And you have her talking about the aftermath of sex. It's so similar to death with patches of fluids, excess hair and dry skin. Quite mm. shocking. Yeah, she's found a way to, I think she's found techniques in order to cope with her life. And it's not particularly a technique that others would use, but it, it it works on a level for her for a point of time. Well, something unconnected with the edgy sex has <laughs> Amelia fleeing to Tasmania. 
to be with her father, Jack. Jack is just as concerned about her, but has alternative ideas. So Jack, I think, might align a little bit more with yours of the great outdoors. Would that be correct? Yeah, I feel like out of all the characters, I'm definitely Jack. <laughs> a little bit of Jack, a little bit of Vlad. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he he definitely has a relationship with the landscape surrounding his property and often invites her to go and shit in the bush or to go and sit under the palm fronds to feel at one with nature. And, you know, she she does it half-heartedly because she's also desperate. She's she's desperate for some sort of relief from her feelings. But, yeah, he has this sort of very, I guess, in a way, a, a sort of hippie effect to him where he's always encouraging her to be more natural and to engage with nature. And she's very comfortable talking with him about an encounter she does because she looks for sexual encounters even in Tassie, and finds Leo. So where does Leo take her? Yeah, so she meets online a man called Leo and he takes her to an underground kink club. So it's in an industrial lot and he does let her know. He's like, it's not very vanilla, you know, are you going to be open to this? And she at this point in time is pretty much saying yes to anything that she thinks will take her into her body and away from her head and her heart. So, yeah, she she ends up going to this to this industrial lock kink club for the, and it's her first sort of foray into BDSM and kink culture. Mine too, I've got to say. <laughs> oh, Dan, I'm sorry. <laughs> it was the vocabulary that I wasn't too sure of, but don't you worry, I, I read it with interest. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> I think it's the word right now in the whole of Australian conversation is consent. And mm. there's so much consent that has to be taken place here, you know, which I think is funny because it's a word when you were writing this a few years ago, does probably not have the impact it does now. Well, I think, you know, what I love about the kink community is that they're very consent driven. And, you know, when when you explore, um, I mean, any sort of component to kink, it, it is very consent orientated and based. And I, and I really love that. And I think, you know, when I was doing research for New Animal, I was on a lot of forums and looking at discussions. And it was interesting because, you know, kink had this sort of huge surge post Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, Everyone was <laughs> heading off to do something kinky, whether it was an innate thing that they wanted or not. It was. It became a sort of fashion, I think, to the general public. And I was really interested in consent on, on those interactions because that is actually void of the true training of kink and BDSM and the authenticity that resides in those places where they really value, you know, knowledge and learning. And so my interest in Amelia and just, you know, this sadist she meets online is, well, nothing has been set up between them. You know, they both seem really, I guess, disengaged from the actual community and they're just free-falling together. So that was my focus. <laughs> and 
he tells her, tells Amelia about the Widowmaker, which runs its training and therapy sessions. What else yes. does she learn at the training sessions? <laughs> well, she gets almost like a BDSM 101 run through in a way, but I think, you know, the character of Amelia is really immune to input at this stage. She's not very open to taking direction or to, I guess, imbibing herself with things that may um, cause intimacy or feeling, which would be some of these practices she's learning. So she sort of rejects it and just does her own thing. And Again, I'm interested what happens when someone is attracted to a subculture like this but actually has no authentic concern for the other people in it or is so in their own pain that they're not empathetic or responsive or, you know, I'm just, I, I think this stuff is fascinating. And I guess for me, when I was looking at stories of kink and BDSM in fiction, I was seeing a lot of erotica and a lot of really titillating and sensual sort of things. And I was thinking, I, I actually want to see the awkwardness. I want to see the pain and horror of miscommunication and of, I guess, getting it wrong. Sure, Amelia would never get some of the best advice from Vlad the Impala. <laughs> but it is Vlad. Who, who sort of says, but you can't disassociate your mind through sex. You've got to be vulnerable to make it work. We'll go back to Jack, who said to her, you can't run from your shadow. You know, you can have two heads and one body and one, but if it's your shadow, you can't run from it. No. Unlike Jack, who continues to write a novel, Ella Baxter, you've finished <laughs> and you've also sold it on to a mini-series. Yes, I know. It's the biggest surprise to me out of everyone, honestly. <laughs> I feel really, I don't know, it's, it's quite a bizarre feeling. I felt like a failure for so long and it's just, it's, it's such a beautiful thing to pass it over to Marie Cardi whose brain I just adore. She's written the, the script and is the showrunner. And, yeah, I sold to Picador in the UK and to $2 Radio in the US. It, it feels really like this book just grew legs and ran away from me, which is honestly, Jan, horrifying and also just fantastic. I, I, I'm really split well, straight down the middle. <laughs> I will be very interested to see whether from the book to the movie, the marzipan fruit and the python gets a bit in. <laughs> Surely one of them. Surely. <laughs> From the formalities of a funeral home to the inside workings of a kink club, death, sex and makeup are all parts of New Animal by Ella Baxter. Thank you so much, Ella. Damn, it's been a pleasure.